this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew 1 and reading from Matthew 1, 18, all the way through chapter 2. We're not going to do that all at one time, but as we go through it. And the reason is because there's a phrase in there that's going to keep popping up. And the phrase is, so that was spoken so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Every time I read through Matthew's story, that phrase jumps out at me. That God is in absolute control of what's happening, regardless of who is acting. There's a biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over all of his creation. Oftentimes this is called providence. That God is in absolute control of everything that happens in this world. He's in absolute control of every single event, and everything that happens is within his will and accomplishes his purposes, everything. And we see that really clearly in this story of Matthew. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, there's a real clear statement of God's providence. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That phrase is what I want to think about as we go through. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's nothing that's going to happen. There's nothing that comes up. There's nothing that comes into our life that is outside of the counsel of his will. Uh, We see God's providence Uh, Throughout the entire Bible, God tells us that he's in control of the weather. It doesn't rain unless he wants it to rain. The wind doesn't blow unless he tells it to blow. He's in charge of the sun rising and the sun setting. He's in charge of chance. Proverbs tells us that the die is cast, but the Lord controls the outcome. Even something which we would say is just completely random, God's in control of. He's in charge of nations when they rise and when they fall. Every nation has its appointed time and season. He's in charge of the decisions that kings make. So the king's decisions are like water. God directs it wherever it goes. And of course, he was in charge of Christ's birth. He knew exactly when that was going to happen. It was planned for all eternity. That's already been mentioned. Um, there's an interesting verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 20, that speaks of Christ being God foreknowing what Christ is going to do from the foundation of the earth or actually before the foundation of the earth. If you go back to 1 Peter 1, 18, It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God before the foundation of the earth, God knew that Christ was going to die for us. Before the foundation of the earth, God knew that Christ was going to be born for us. That's an amazing thought. When God created Adam and Eve, he understood that his son would be dying for those before they had even committed sin. 
This is not plan B. It isn't that they sinned and God decided to save them. That was planned from the foundation, before the foundation of the earth, before they were even created. And that's why the minute that, that uh, they sin, God gives a promise to the woman. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. By the way, in case you don't know, women don't have seed. That's a weird phrase. But it's her seed that's going to crush the head of the woman. Abraham is told that his offspring, through his offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. David is promised that uh, one of his uh, offspring would be on the throne forever. By the way, that was misunderstood. They thought it meant that it would be a perpetual dynasty, but it meant that there would be one of his that would reign forever. Hence the hallelujah chorus, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he will. And all of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, all pointing to the time of Christ's birth. So we know that this is all planned. This idea of the providence of God is a comforting doctrine to the believer. It's summarized in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who are, uh, love God and who are called according to his purposes. When I was just out of college, the pastor of our church died suddenly. He preached on Sunday and we had his funeral on Friday of that same week. He had a heart attack Monday afternoon working in his yard. Devastating. He had been at the church 25 years. He was the only pastor really that I'd ever known. And we were at the funeral and um, one of the staff pastors... Her name was Jerry. Uh, she, there was an open mic where you could share things, and she stood up and she said, I know some of you are really wrestling with how this could happen. She says, let me tell you something the pastor told me when my own father died. Her father had died also suddenly on the operating table. It was a routine surgery. And she came to the pastor and she said, I think there was malpractice and we want to sue. She was so upset. And the pastor said, Jerry... Do you really believe that God is up in heaven wringing his hands and going, oh, if they had only not messed up, he would still be alive? No, because one of the things that God's in control of is the exact length of your life. God knows that. So that doctrine of providence means that everything that comes into our life, we thank God for. Ephesians tells us, be thankful for everything, everything that comes into our life. But it's also a confusing doctrine because it makes us wrestle with a question. How can God use evil men to accomplish his purposes? And what place does man's choice have in this? We have the freedom to make decisions. How does that fit? And as a result, many people reject this idea that God is in absolute control. Um, a few years ago, some of you who've been around for a while will remember this. There was a terrible accident on 99. A truck coming in uh, southbound crossed the center divider. He was convicted of drunk driving. He crossed the center divider, so it was Oleanders at the time, and hit a car coming the opposite way with three girls from Selma High, and they all died. Um, that Sunday at church, we prayed for that family the families, and I was teaching Sunday school and I made the comment, it's wonderful to know that even this is part of God's plan. And a woman stood up and challenged me and she said, God had nothing to do with this. This was a wicked man, driving drunk, causing the death of three people, and how dare you blame that on God? 
But if we don't give that to God, then it's completely senseless and it has no part. Everything works according to the counsel of his will. Uh, in Amos, there's a verse which says, does calamity come into a city? But I did not cause it. God claims responsibility for those things. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of that today. What I want to do is look at the Christmas story out of Matthew. Some of you are kind of worried. This is a heavy topic. But what we see in Matthew is this phrase, which says, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. And it's not just spoken about those who wish to honor God. It's spoken about those who are trying as hard as they can to thwart God's plan, and it doesn't make any difference. Everything they do falls right in line with God's plan. And yet they're making decisions, and they're doing their own actions, they're making their own choices, and yet nothing happens that is not a part of God's plan. The two men primarily are Joseph and Herod. Joseph, obviously a righteous man, Herod, a very wicked man. And yet, both of them fulfill God's plan completely. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 1, I said we're going to read through and take these as they come in the passage rather than read the whole passage at one time. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he cons- as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're introduced here to Joseph. Uh, Joseph being a just man or a righteous man. Righteous not meaning that he was perfect, but rather that he was in right relation with his family, with his community, and with his God. This was a man who had a desire to follow God and was doing what God had asked him to do. Uh, Joseph is a righteous man. He is betrothed to Mary, Many of you, of course, because you've been in church, know this. The betrothal period was a legally binding period. That's why he had to divorce her. But during that period, both the husband, the bride, and the bridegroom would set up their household. The, the The groom had to make sure that they had a house, a place to live. The bride would take and collect all of the things needed to start housekeeping. Much more difficult back then than now. You didn't just go and register at... um, wherever and have all the gifts come. You had to make those things and it took a while. There was a lot of sewing and and making. And during that time, you were not legally married. And during that time, Joseph discovers the absolute worst news that he could possibly get. And that is that his bride-to-be is pregnant. And it's not him and he knows that. Joseph often gets overlooked. We focus on Mary, but notice the angel says, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph is going to give up a lot to marry Mary. If he divorced her and put her away, everybody understands that's not his child. But if he marries her, he takes that same shame upon himself. He has fornicated. He has acted inappropriately. And for a man who is a just and righteous man, that was a big deal. He's going to take that with her. Don't be afraid, Joseph, to do that. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He has a dream, and what's his response to the dream? Absolute obedience, immediate obedience to God. You say, well, of course, it was an angel that came to him. Read your Bible. Not everybody who has an angel comes, obeys. You have people argue with angels. You have people disobey angels. You have people who ask for another angel to come. You have all sorts of scenarios. People don't necessarily obey. Joseph obeys at great cost to himself. And the result is that he is blessed and he works hand in glove with God to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. As we go to John, uh, John Matthew chapter 2, excuse me, I thought I was in Sunday school there. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Um, we have another prophecy that's fulfilled by someone who's not mentioned in this passage. It was mentioned when we read Luke. Caesar Augustus, God has moved his heart like water so that he's called for a census so that everybody has to go back to their hometown so that the words of the prophet might be fulfilled that Christ is born in Bethlehem. Otherwise, they would, he would not have been. Um, Herod gets this disturbing news. Notice what he does. He calls the priests. He goes to God's word. He knows where to look. Where's that son, that child going to be born? It's going to be in Bethlehem. How does he know that? Because God has spoken it. You would think that would be a sobering thought to him, but of course it isn't. He's doing that so that he can do everything he can to thwart God's will. He wants to destroy this child, and of course we know that. Verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return by Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This sets in motion Herod's action to kill all of the infants. And as a result, we have two more prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. Herod decides 
the exact opposite of Joseph. Joseph, who wants to honor God. Herod, who only cares about himself. Uh, If you read about Herod, Josephus writes about Herod. Herod is a wicked, bloodthirsty king. We are not used to this in our society, although we see a little bit of it happening in the Middle East with some of the tyrants that are over there and the way that they take power. When Herod ascended to the throne, he would have killed off all of his rivals. That would include relatives, brothers, children, even if they were a threat, bloodthirsty. He is going to kill all of the babies two years old and younger around Bethlehem because the prophet said, because God said that's where this baby is to be born. And in the process of that, two more prophecies are fulfilled. One, because Joseph obeys, and one simply because of Herod's actions. Um, Start at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had become, oh, excuse me, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Here's our phrase again. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Joseph is given another instruction, another one that's going to cost him something. He has to flee to Egypt. Say, well, okay, God tells you to go to Egypt, go to Egypt. Some of us are pretty good rationalizers. You know, God, I'll just go to Syria. It's closer. Lebanon's really nice this time of year. I'll go to to Damascus, where Herod isn't in charge. I'll just go outside of the boundaries where Herod's in control. No, God says go to Egypt with all the connotation of that coming out of slavery and all of what Egypt represented to a Jew. And Joseph obeys at cost to himself and goes. And because of that, another prophecy is fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. And then... In verse 16, the really tragic part of the story. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to become be comforted because they are no more. And we see Herod fitting exactly in with the purpose of God's will. Everything that's been prophesied is going to take place. And yet Herod is acting in a completely wicked manner. It's his decision, but he's going to bear the consequences for it. Joseph is acting by putting God first, and he's blessed. Herod is putting himself first. All he thinks about is himself, and as a result, he brings condemnation upon himself. But nothing stops the plan of God. Nothing stops God's purposes from being fulfilled. Finally, in verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Even in his death, Herod one last time fulfills the prophecy. He probably has passed on the news, you have to kill this child. And because of that, Joseph goes to Galilee and becomes a Nazarene. The question, of course, is how does this apply to us? And I think it's pretty obvious as we read through this passage. The dividing line in history is Jesus Christ. How you respond to Jesus Christ is how you respond to God. It's interesting in this story, they're both responding to God, but Jesus Christ becomes for us how we respond to God. Um, in uh, Sunday school, we're studying through the book of John, and perhaps the big theme in John is that Christ comes to represent God perfectly. Um, it was mentioned this morning already. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus speaks and people disagree with him, he says to them, you're not disagreeing with my word, you're disagreeing with, disagreeing with God's words because God's words are my words. When Jesus uh, heals on the Sabbath, and they say, your works are not the works of God. Jesus says, my works are the works of God. And anybody who doesn't see that does not love God. Jesus is, is absolutely clear about who he is. The way that you respond to Jesus is the way that you respond to God. There is no other option. Uh, this is why when Philip says, show us the Father, and it will be enough, enough for us. And Jesus says, haven't I been with you? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We have the Father made manifest to us in Jesus Christ. The way that you respond to Jesus Christ is exactly the way that you respond to God. And you have only two options. We can submit our will to his or we can exalt our own will. Herod and Joseph are extreme examples, but those are the two choices. Either submit your will to God's or exalt your own will. Those of you who are not believers, perhaps you're here with somebody and you don't know Christ, then, then the Christmas story is not just about a baby being born. It's about the choice we make of, about him. Do we reject Christ, in which case you are following in the footsteps of Herod? Or do we bow the knee and submit to him? There's an interesting psalm that I'd like to look at before I finish with the application. We've actually studied this uh, just a, a few months ago. Um, psalm chapter 2. Um, I, I want to read it in light of the story that we've just read, looking at both Herod and Joseph. It talks about God's control over the nations and about his sovereign, uh, sovereign control and nothing is going to 
take him away from his purposes. And it also talks about the proper way. We're going to read the whole psalm. But I want you to think of Herod as we read part of this and then think of Joseph when we get to the end. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. This is what Herod is doing. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The choice is to shake your fist at God and to try and defy him, or it's to kiss the son and to serve him and find refuge in him. By way of application, I want to talk not just to those who don't believe, but to those of us who are believers. We started out by saying that God's providence is that everything works according to the purpose of his will. So a really good question here is, what is the purpose of his will? What is it that he is intends? Because it's going to happen but the question will be, are we fighting him or are we, are we with him? If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, and actually if we go back just a little bit, it talks about why we have been set apart for him. Um, it's a long passage, but I want you to listen to it. As we read it, this is the purpose for which Christ came. It says, blessed, this is verse 3, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's one of our purposes, to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. We have been created to the praise of his glorious grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The goal is for all things to be united in Jesus Christ. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him... You also, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's too much there for right now. Let me just summarize. We've been created for God's glory. We've been created to bring him glory. Interestingly, everybody in the Christmas story brings God glory. Herod brings glory to God. God is glorified by what Herod does because it shows his incredible control. Herod glorifies God, but at the cost of his soul. But we are asked to glorify God and do so so that we will be conformed to the image of his son. Your purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son. Your purpose is to be united with him in all things, to be exactly like our Savior. And as such, we have a calling. Joseph is a perfect model, and the model is obedience. We are called upon to be a living sacrifice, which means we offer our life up to him continually. We're called upon to be one who... um, just lost my train of thought. We, we're called upon to be ones who give, take up our cross daily and follow him. We're called upon to walk in the spirit daily. Jesus, back to the book of John, says, if you love me, what? You will obey my commands. We are called to obedience. The, the purpose of this day for Christ's coming is to make us like him. And until we are obedient, Christmas doesn't have the meaning that it should be. So this Christmas, as we celebrate, we keep in mind what Christ did for us. He came so that his purpose might be accomplished in us, so that we would be conformed to his image, so that we would be ones who bring him glory in every single thing that we do and be able to be with him forever in his glorious presence.